0: I had a dream about this place. Ghost stories for the end of the world. Hope you're good. Bite this sandwich. So there's a guy called Raymond John Ryan, and he was basically living the American dream, baby. Uh, He had the world by the balls, as they say. He'd started out as an oil man in the 1920s, but his operation didn't really make any money until the 1940s when his wells in Kentucky and Indiana started to produce. He used this money to invest in real estate ventures all over the country, but the majority of his wealth and influence came from his property interests in Palm Springs in California. Now, he was on very good terms with some of the biggest movie stars of the era. Um, He even partnered up with Elizabeth Taylor, and William Holden to invest in restaurants and country clubs and hotels. And he became known as Mr. Palm Springs. In 1952, he bought the El Mirador Hotel and it became the place to be for the the beautiful people of Hollywood. On any given day, if you had the money and the profile, you could stroll in there and play water polo or have a drink with, you know, Dean Martin. Frank Sinatra, Ginger Rogers, Gregory Peck, and so on and so forth. Howard Hughes was also a frequent guest there. He used to rent his own cottage and hang blankets over the windows so that nobody would know if he was actually there or not. Ryan's growing wealth. Well, this also meant that he could finally indulge in his real passion, which was high stakes poker and blackjack. And he developed a reputation as one of the the greatest poker players in America or so his friends and publicists claim. He became something like a guest of honor at whichever Las Vegas casino he chose to visit when he hit the strip. And this inevitably brought him into the orbit of some of the most powerful gangsters in the States. And one of his favorite spots was the Thunderbird Hotel. The Thunderbird was secretly owned by Maya Lansky and a number of other syndicate figureheads. Ryan was also close to uh, John Drew, who was an outfit-connected guy who managed the Stardust Casino in the 1960s. We talked at length about the Stardust in parts one and two of this series. So by 1977, Ray is 73 years old, and he's looking forward to living to 100. You know, he kept in tremendous shape for a man his age with daily workouts at the Olympia Health and Beauty Resort in Evansville in in Indiana. On October the 18th, Ray left the gym and climbed into his brand new Lincoln Continental, and he started the engine, and he was blown to pieces by a bomb that was attached to the bottom of the car And they were were scraping pieces of him off buildings and trees hundreds of meters from the explosion in some of the accounts I've read. The cops immediately ruled this as a mob hit. They rushed through the investigation and they decided that the reason that car blew up was because of a series, a convoluted series of events that stretched all the way back to the late 40s. We shan't get into all the ins and outs, but broadly speaking, It began in 1949, when Ray took part in a week-long poker game against a professional gambler called Nick Dandolos at the Thunderbird. Ryan took half a million dollars off Dandolos, who insisted uh, that that Ray Ryan had been cheating during this game. So to keep Dandolos sweet, Ryan paid him $25,000, and it is kind of hard not to read that as... Some kind of admission of guilt, you know, especially if you are Dandolos. And that's certainly how, you know, figures in the mob took it, particularly a guy called Marshall Caifano. Now, Caifano was a soldier for the outfit, and he'd replaced Johnny Roselli as their their chief fixer in Vegas. There's a rumor that he helped plan Bugsy Siegel's murder in the 1940s, and he oversaw the takeover of the Flamingo Hotel after uh, Bugsy was killed. Kaifano had heard the rumors about Ryan being a perka cheat for years. So in the early 60s, he offered to protect Ryan from rival crews for $60,000 a year. Um, John Drew even offered a character reference for Kaifano, but Ryan backed out. Kaifano wasn't a particularly shrewd gangster, you know. None of them really are when you, um, you get right down to it. So... Instead of trying to be in any way subtle about what he was doing, he straight up threatened to murder Ryan if he didn't start paying him for protection. So Ryan went to the feds and Kaifano wound up doing 10 years for extortion and racketeering. And as the case progressed, although Ryan was a protected witness, protected informant, Both the FBI and the IRS started looking into Ryan's own tangled gangland connections. And they found that a lot of his real estate deals had been financed with loans from the Teamsters union. And when Caifano was released uh, in the early seventies, Ryan was serving three years for tax evasion and obstruction of justice. The IRS found out that he'd been destroying paperwork that connected him financially to the mafia. After his release in 1973, uh, according to the feds. Ryan continued his jet-set lifestyle and he offered to pay Kaifano a million dollars as an apology for testifying against him. Kaifano refused the money and he politics with the outfit to get permission to kill Ryan. And in this version, he finally got the okay in 1977 and kaboom. But take a bite from the other side of this sandwich. Because there's something very interesting buried in this story. And when you dig it out, it puts a very different spin on everything. Because one of the key reasons the IRS landed on Ryan so heavily in the late 60s is because the paperwork that he'd been destroying linked him, the mafia, and a number of other wealthy Americans to one specific property that he co-owned in Kenya with the actor William Holden. This property was called the Mount Kenya Safari Club, and under Ryan, it had become a hub for movie stars and mobsters and the super wealthy. And throughout the 60s and the 70s, spooks and other political operators would begin to gravitate there too. By the mid 70s, Ryan was looking to sell the Safari Club and he began courting potential buyers. In 1975, he met Adnan Khashoggi, and by all accounts, Khashoggi fell in love with the property, and he and Ryan struck up a a rapport, and they bonded over their shared addictions to high-stakes gambling in Vegas casinos, teenage showgirls, and making money, and they began to negotiate um, the sale of the safari club. Khashoggi was already deeply involved in the world of intelligence by this point. By the late 60s, he was making almost $100 million a year just from commissions that he got from Lockheed Martin for arranging arms sales. Um, He was a key fixer between Lockheed and Arab states that wanted to buy weapons. From what we know, Khashoggi's first overt contact with the CIA, came in 1966 when he was approached by a guy called Miles Copeland. Now, in addition to being a spook, Copeland was also, he claimed, a uh, former jazz musician and an expert on the art and a uh, representative for Western oil interests. His son, um, believe it or not, were going to become the uh, drummer for the police, you know, Every breath you take. You could say that Copeland definitely fell into that old boy network. You know, he moved in that same orbit as people like James Angleton. You know, they fancied themselves as almost um, bohemian spooks in a strange way. And Copeland says, quote, Adnan and I, separately, had been called on by our respective friends in Langley, i.e. the CIA, to have an official, off-the-record exchange of ideas on the emerging crisis in the Middle East. This was the the series of events that would lead to the Six-Day War in 1967. We came up with suggestions that the tame bureaucrats would like to have made, but couldn't. Our meeting in 66 put the two of us on a Miles and Adnan basis that has lasted for more than 20 years of business, parties, and a very special kind of political action. Now, Copeland had been harboring an ambition to create what he called the private CIA. And we'll get more into this concept as we go along in this show. But here in 1967, he was about a decade ahead of the game. And Copeland also put Khashoggi in touch with another spook fixer called Edward K. Moss. Moss would come to act as Khashoggi's PR rep in Washington. He'd been part of the anti-Castro operations, naturally, and he'd appeared on behalf of Khashoggi when he was asked to um, speak in front of the US House of Representatives to discuss the Lockheed payoffs in 1975. Moss appeared in Khashoggi's stead with his proxy. And Moss was also the one who drew up the paperwork for the sale of the Safari Club uh, to Adnan. By 1977, the sale was complete and the Safari Club was ready to serve as the headquarters for the supranational deep state, as Peter Dale Scott calls it. And later that same year, Ray Ryan, the previous owner, is suddenly killed in a car bombing and the cops immediately pinned it on the outfit. So what I'm asking you to do here is consider a notion, right? In one version of this story, some low level mob middle manager waits nearly 15 years to kill Ray Ryan for snitching. He even turns down a million dollars. Um and we're told that if it was wasn't for the intervention of the outfit boss Tony Akado, Ryan would have been killed much sooner than he was. Um, because Akado kept a summer home. In Indiana, he didn't want any trouble where he summered. However, Ray Ryan sold that Kenya property to not just anyone, but to a CIA cutout, an arms dealer who was also connected to the mob, and knew that Ryan had a tendency to talk to the feds when he felt the slightest amount of pressure. And the reasons why Khashoggi had bought the Mount Kenya Safari Club went far beyond just wanting um, a retreat, in a beautiful part of Africa to throw parties and host orgies went far beyond that. Ryan was self-evidently in over his head and he had a tendency to get tangled up with some pretty serious people and then panic. So is it significant, do you think, that Tony Ocado suddenly gives the okay to kill Ryan months after he sells the safari club? Is it at all possible that someone with Khashoggi's level of influence figured, what's the point in keeping a loose end dangling? You know, now that the paperwork is signed and out of the way and the deal is done, is it possible that his interests aligned with the mobs? And this was a mutually beneficial hit, uh, given that Ryan was already pushing 80 and he didn't have many friends who mattered, you know. Certainly no friends who'd be able to avenge him in any way if he was snuffed. So can we then add Ryan to this long list of names we've been building up of people who died as a result of this bloody process of reorganization that defined the the spook milieu in the back half of the 1970s? We've spoken at length in the past about how US intelligence in the interwar period between World War I and World War II It was really just a collection of, you know, military, political, and business figures who traveled the world and shared gossip and pulled information when they rotated back to DC, you know. These guys were all intimately connected. They'd been members of the same college fraternities and country clubs. They kept each other's secrets and they all owed each other favors, you know. And if corporate America needed muscle, it could call in that favor when required, So a coup in South America here, a naval blockade in the Caribbean there. Um, The Dulles brothers at Sullivan and Cromwell were, they were only ever a phone call away. Now it worked well enough for 30 years until World War II forced the need for something more organized. You know, something sanctioned and overseen by the government, or at least key elements inside the government. So that's how we got the OSS and then the CIA. Alan Dulles' real vision for the agency had always been at odds with how he sold it in Washington. Because Dulles had always seen the agency as the military arm of America's ruling class. Uh, He was under no illusions about, you know, what he wanted and expected from it. He saw it as a fusion of Wall Street and the Ivy League old boy network, and the military power and resources of the American government, and dedicated to fighting communism at its core. But as someone who you know, lived and breathed ruling class ideology, Dulles saw no justifiable reason for why his baby should be subjected to the same level of oversight and scrutiny as other federal bodies. This is the same man, let's not forget, who made James Angleton, the counterintelligence chief, on the provisor that Angleton not run background checks or polygraph tests on any of the CIA's founders, just in case he unwittingly made their Nazi business connections part of the official record in staff files, you know. So when Dulles and his colleagues couldn't get the approval or funding for an operation they were planning, they would mobilize their dark networks of private financing and they would run the job off the books, you know, and the last, what are we up to now, 44 episodes, a good 30 of those um, are basically exploring what the CIA looks like when it's in off the books mode. It's usually in <laughs> off the books mode. But even for all that, there was still some residual link between the agency and, and you know, the centres of of power in DC, be it you know, presidents or friendly senators or some thin facsimile of legitimacy that at least gave the agency's activities cover. Now, following Watergate and the Church Committee and the resulting public outcry, as we've covered, the agency had to submerge its operations ever deeper, and it had to find a way to continue its mission as Capitol's invisible army. Um, you know, and and all that that entailed, the, the programs of assassination, money laundering, election meddling, arms trafficking, it had to continue with all that while dodging reform efforts and demands for greater governmental oversight. And it also had to justify its budget and ultimately its very existence, which is what would eventually lead it to massively exaggerate the capabilities of the Soviet Union, even though its own analysts were reporting that the entire country was heading into a terminal period of decline. And it would also lead them to creating the conditions for blowback that the agency could then use to justify its continued um, operation. And of course, the Mujahideen, the war on terror, all of this is born out of this idea of seeding your own enemies around the world so that you can fight them at a later date. We're going to get into that. In episodes to come. However in 1976 it fell to Poppy Bush to find a way to square these circles. Now Bush embodied the old boy network and his real job, as we know, it wasn't to reform the CIA into something more accountable and compliant, but it was really, when you break it down, it was to complete Alan Dulles's project. Bush was helped in no small part by the fact that the cult of secrecy and compartmentalization was so well entrenched at the agency uh, by that point poppy himself he probably is the greatest example of what this culture of secrecy and compartmentalization looks like when it's practiced well you know plausible deniability and indirect influence were and are prized above everything else at Langley. And Poppy had the connections and the know-how to realize a strange fusion of the interwar and postwar periods of US intelligence. So instead of centralization and concentration of power, the CIA was going to spread outwards. It was going to become ever more diffuse and obscure in its methods. And if you thought that you know, Watergate or the Bay of Pigs, if you thought they were complicated, trying to untangle what role the CIA played in a given historical event after 1976, from the wars in Africa to interventions in the Middle East, in Europe and South America, that becomes a psychedelic adventure for the uh, enterprising researcher. Um, and in fact, it's it's been a nightmare to try and fashion this, part of the story into a compelling narrative for the final few episodes of, of the casino series because there's a real danger that, you know, each hour just becomes an endless drone. You know, this guy paid, that guy who worked at the same law firm as this dude and the law firm itself was owned by this company, which was a CIA front connected to this spook who ran guns for this spy. You know, you get the idea. Um, So before we get into the... The Safari Club. We're going to hop back to just before Bush became CIA director. And we're going to discuss an incident that pretty much locked in his appointment. And this should give you some idea of how the man operates and the level at which he operates. So it was December 1975. And this was the tail end of the year of intelligence, as the papers called it. You know, this was Scandal City. This was Dirt Armageddon. And Bush still wasn't sure if he was going to get the job as director, on paper at least. The CIA director is supposed to be a non-partisan bureaucrat, you know. And Bush and his his family and his colleagues, he, they were not this. Um, just like the Dulles brothers, uh, the Bushes were long-time Eastern establishment operatives. You know, obviously Poppy had... Uh, taken the step towards unifying with what we called the cowboy faction of the American power elite uh, all through the 50s and the 60s with his oil deals. But yeah, they, they were firmly in the old money Republican camp. Bush was an outspoken CIA supporter, and people like Frank Church were making some very persuasive arguments against him because of this. There was no way that this guy was going to be the non-partisan bureaucrat that needed to be running the agency. Um, The media as well, they were skeptical that he really represented um, a genuine desire to reform on the CIA's part, because everybody knew that the CIA really wanted him to become the next guy. But Bush did have friends who were starting to feel more and more confident about speaking in favor of him, speaking in favor of the CIA. In fact, Strom Thurmond, made an impassioned speech on his behalf. Uh, He said this, quote, The public concern lies on disclosures which are tearing down the CIA and not upon the selection of this highly competent man to repair the damage of this overexposure. This is a theme you will see cropping up again and again. It's not that the CIA was doing bad things. That's not the scandal. The scandal is that these bad things have been overexposed to the public. So if we can just turn off the tap and fix the leaks, you know, then we can we can all move on with our lives. We can forget about reform or certainly abolition. Bush was basically the plumber that they were bringing in to fix these leaking pipes. Now, Strom's pal uh, Joe Biden, he disagreed. Uh, he said that Bush, to his credit, he said, Bush was the wrong appointment for the wrong job at the wrong time. Now, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes politicking, which we'll probably never know the full extent of. But two events happened just after Bush's confirmation hearing that, well, they didn't bode well, put it like that, if you were a proponent of CIA reform. First, the House voted 146 to 124 in favour of subjecting the Pike Committee's report on CIA abuses to censorship and reduction by the White House, and, by extension, the CIA. Now, the Pike committee was another investigation that had been launched alongside Frank Church's and the Rockefeller Commission. And again, it was looking into and probing CIA overreach and abuse. Now, this decision to censor Pike was a sorry end to a tortured investigation that the CIA and the Ford White House had frustrated at every single turn. You know, at times, they displayed outright hostility to the process. Lawsuits have been threatened. They refuse to comply with even routine requests, you know, and the standoff nearly triggered a full on constitutional crisis because the agency insisted on hiding behind the White House and the White House refused to provide any transparency at all to the committee. The cult of secrecy, friends, this is what we're talking about. It is all pervasive. And Otis Pike, who was the the committee chairman, he said the experience was one of foot-dragging, stonewalling, and careful outright deception. Next, and you know, as has happened so many times before on this show, we had a conveniently timed act of violence that suddenly shifted the public conversation and ensured that Bush was going to Langley and that the establishment would get what it wanted. See, eight days after Bush's confirmation hearing, a CIA officer called Richard Welch was assassinated by 17 November in Greece. 17 November were a uh, a radical left militant group. Welch had been the station chief in Greece and his identity and location had been mysteriously blown uh, in the months leading up to his assassination. Bush and the CIA, well... They seized on this as proof that this newfangled disclosure movement was a threat to U.S. national security and and to the brave men and women of U.S. intelligence. You know, forget that there was no material connection at all between Welch's murder and, you know, the church committee. Bush and co worked to create the perception that there was. And this helped Diffuse the impact of the various committee reports. And it even painted guys like Frank Church in a a slightly villainous light, you know. And it also handily gave the media the justification they needed to gradually abandon this crusade against security state overreach. And after Welch, Bush was guaranteed to become the next director. And in addition to everything that would follow Bush's ascension to the throne, another byproduct of the hit was the 1982 Intelligence Identities Protection Act. And from then on, it was illegal to expose agents' identities. Now, a listener introduced me um, a couple of months back now, and I, I am a, apologize, but I'm blanking on their name. Um, it's been a busy few months, but a listener introduced me to a, a very good American term um called shit curtain. <laughs> it's disgusting, but it, it it's a good term and there are two fairly interesting examples of shit curtain with the Welch murder. The first is that fairly absurd conspiracy theory developed after it and it said that Aristotle Onassis um had Welch killed as revenge for Welch's Supposed involvement in the JFK and RFK assassinations. Now, this one was promulgated by a British Daily Express journalist called Peter Evans, and I'm inclined to view it with suspicion because it came from a British journalist first and because it's so left field as to feel like a deliberately absurd distraction, you know. The second came from Barbara Bush in her 1994 memoir. She wrote, quote, this gentle Greek scholar's cover had been blown, along with many others, by a traitorous tell-all book written by former CIA agent Philip Aji. Now, the book in question was inside the company and uh, Aji sued Bush for $4 million and he only withdrew this suit when um, she agreed to remove the accusation from future reprintings uh, but the job was done you know and and the water was suitably mudded now does this at all put you in mind of the way that she also ran cover for bush and his whereabouts around the jfk hit you know um behind every great man there is a great woman you know so is it not worth considering really how convenient welch's murder was for an agency that desperately needed to rescue its reputation and ensure that their man became the next CIA director. And also, contrast the Bush enterprise's manipulation of the Welch hit with the near total indifference that the CIA under him showed to the Orlando Letelier bombing in Washington, D.C. in 1976. Uh, We discussed this last episode. When they did pay any mind, Bush's CIA... It was to misdirect the official investigation and run interference for Chilean intelligence. You know, they probably knew that L'Italier was a marked man months in advance. And they sat on that information and they did nothing with it. Um, so at the very least, you know, that should give us some idea of what they were willing to do to achieve longer term objectives. Whereas this Welch hit is extremely convenient, suspiciously timed at the very least. His cover is blown in advance, you know? And yet the problem is not how the CIA protects its overseas agents. It's not um, whether or not something deeper was going on. No, the problem is that the news is reporting too much on CIA overreach. That's why he got killed. So yeah, is it really out of bounds to ask some questions about the timing of Welch's death and the way that it was used by the agency? So Bush becomes um, CIA director and the main concern on the minds of everyone involved in this project of reorganization, deep state reorganization in the late 70s is how you avoid the kind of messy exposure and fallout that as they saw it had almost killed the CIA after Watergate. So after Jimmy Carter became president, some tepid reforms of the agency were brought in. These were easy enough to either sidestep or reverse in some cases, but everybody seemed to agree that a major rethink was needed in how the CIA conducted business. And this would entail bringing in partners. And these partners would have to be the kind that would defer to Langley's authority, but who could be trusted to plan and run operations without needing to be overseen directly by agency officers, because these officers needed that veneer of plausible deniability in case they were ever called to appear before Congress again. So what this meant in practice is that the layers of insulation between the Americans and their assets and cutouts were about to multiply, and those chains of middlemen and intermediaries, the ones carrying the orders and policy from the center to the far-flung nodes of all these secret networks, all of all of these layers of insulation and chains of middlemen and intermediaries were going to become more tangled and harder to trace by necessity. So we we can therefore think of the Safari Club Network. What would become the Safari Club Network as the ultimate contingency plan. And it was one that had begun developing um, about three or four years before George Bush took over, the CIA director. Now it developed with the CIA's tacit approval and support, but the agency only fully linked up with it as such once George Bush becomes director. And even then, it would be wrong to say that the CIA per se, secretly ran Safari Club because it was actually factions and elements within and adjacent to the agency that established back channels to the network. Now, these were top agency guys. These were guys like Richard Helms, Ted Shackley, Edwin Wilson, Thomas Clines, and of course, Poppy. And in fact, in keeping with the agency's long-standing practice of compartmentalization, Bush's successor as director, Stansfield-Turner, he would be kept almost entirely in the dark about Safari Club. Now, the name obviously comes because of the resort in Kenya, which Khashoggi, as we've said, he purchased in 1977, but it helps to think in more um, metaphysical terms about it sometimes. Um, The Safari Club is an actual physical location, But when we use it in this deep state context, it's really a catch-all term that describes the indirect administration of the American empire. And the seeds for this transition were planted in the immediate aftermath of Watergate. Um, Because don't forget that even before Khashoggi came along, that resort in Kenya had been one of many meeting spots for spooks, gangsters, business leaders from around the world. So in a sense, Khashoggi, Bush, Helms, their partners, they weren't really creating anything new. Um, And in fact, yeah, Henry Kissinger had anticipated that there would eventually be a need for a second CIA, as it was called, um, a few years before. Now, he'd been one of the early adopters of indirect empire. In fact, John K. Cooley writes in um, Unholy Wars, quote, Henry Kissinger had refined and applied the method with skill, get others to do what you want done. The others in Kissinger's era of the early 1970s, a time of rehearsal for the approaching adventure in Afghanistan, were a set of unlikely colleagues. They included Francis Count Alexandre de Maranches, King Hassan II of Morocco, President Anwar al-Sadat of Egypt, and Kamal Adham, head of intelligence for Saudi Arabia. And Prince Turki al-Faisal, who was the head of Saudi intelligence from 1977 to 2001, um, he explained years after the fact um, what the Safari Club was. And he said, quote, In 1976, after the Watergate matters took place here, your intelligence community was literally tied up by Congress. It could not do anything. It could not send spies, it could not write reports, and it could not pay money. In order to compensate for that, a group of countries got together in the hope of fighting communism and established what was called the Safari Club. The Safari Club included France, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and Iran. This is Iran prior to the revolution. This is the Shah's Iran. Now, it's difficult for me to say whether Safari Club replaced the CIA, um, per se, but certainly what we can say is that the agency tactically sacrificed parts of itself at home to give the illusion of reform and it allowed some minor congressional oversight and some minor disclosures. but secretly this whole time, yeah, it was working to develop this um alternative network and I think it makes sense to treat Safari Club as Essentially a second CIA, yeah, which was itself just a, a reinvention and an expansion of that interwar intelligence network that we've mentioned, born of the need to outsource the dirtier aspects of American intelligence operations. This, this new second CIA, as we might think of it, it was far more in line with Alan Dulles' own vision. Uh, back in the late 40s. And supposedly, and intriguingly, Watergate and William Colby's dismissal of James Angleton in 1974 accelerated the development of this second private CIA. In fact, Angleton describes something that sounds very much like a split in the agency after 1972, 1973. And this split was between CIA officers who approved of more oversight and a rolling back of the more overt abuses and the ones who cleaved to what we might think of as the dullest vision. Uh, So this is James Angleton speaking here, quote, Colby destroyed counterintelligence, but because Colby was seen by Shackley and Helms as having betrayed the CIA to Congress, they simply began working with outsiders like Adham and Saudi Arabia. The traditional CIA, answering to the president, became an empty vessel, having little more than technical capability. So this is very interesting to think of because we have said before that the CIA relies in large part on a few died in the world true believers in the agency's mission. You know, Alan Dulles was always smart enough to um, recruit from everywhere. They would recruit uh, bright-eyed young liberals who believed in, you know, civil rights and even some mild forms of social democracy. They didn't care um, as long as you were, proved yourself committed to the the agency's uh, anti-communist mission, you know. And in fact the real shit that the CIA got up to all through, you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It actually helped to have a few Boy Scouts in there because they lent an air of legitimacy to the agency. But you see, the problem with hiring idealists is that when they discover is going on, and when they discover how this vast secret machine actually operates, they feel the disillusion a lot more intensely. And in that situation, they are more prone to kick up a fuss and begin collecting evidence. And we can maybe trace the origins of this internal split here back to the Schlesinger memo. Now we discussed this in part two. Uh, James Schlesinger was brought in as CIA director after Nixon sacked Richard Helms as part of the the post-Watergate purges. Now Schlesinger requested that his agents uh, send him any and all concerns they had about potentially illegal CIA activity. And these reports were compiled into the, the Family Jewels document. We've mentioned this before. And parts of this were leaked to journalists like Seymour Hirsch as part of this brewing civil war inside the agency. And this in turn is what triggered the various congressional inquiries. Cord Meyer, another founding father of U.S. intelligence, and Mary Pinchot Mayer's husband, don't forget. He describes Schlesinger's memo as um, a hunting license for the resentful subordinate to dig back into the records of the past in order to come up with evidence that might destroy the career of a superior whom he long hated. So we have Safari Club, which steps in to... Um, conduct the activities that the CIA is no longer able to. Now, Marenches and Adham were key players in the club. Uh, Marenches, in fact, <clears throat> is said to have drawn up the founding charter that was signed by representatives from Saudi Arabia and Morocco and Egypt and Iran. And in some accounts, he is the one who dreamed up the idea in the first place, uh, you know, of th- this idea of having a global private intelligence outfit that would replace the CIA. And for a time, he served as the chief conduit for intelligence between the Americans and this new network. Khashoggi gives us a good route into understanding the function of the club and how it ensured compliance and secrecy. It's difficult to adequately describe the extent Of Khashoggi's influence by the late 1970s without getting completely off track in this episode. But as a cutout, he offered himself to the CIA as well as British, Israeli, and Saudi intelligence as a fixer who could serve as their representative, you know, without directly implicating his handlers in, you know, whatever operation he was overseeing. So Lockheed Martin, for example. They couldn't directly donate to a political campaign in the wake of the, uh, the bribery scandals. But what they could do is give Khashoggi $200 million and have him use it to invest and bank with Richard Nixon's pal, uh, Bebe Robozo. The CIA couldn't have its officers personally trafficking women and girls to the safari club or Khashoggi's grand parties. You know, they couldn't load them up on coke and dope and have them compromise politicians and heads of state while someone discreetly snapped pictures. But Khashoggi could, and he could do it for them using his own personnel and working with his CIA-connected friends like Edward Moss. John uh, Kamau writes... Quote, Edward Moss's mistress was Julia Cellini, sister of Dino Cellini, who ran casinos in Havana and Vegas on behalf of the Italian mafia in the 50s and 60s. Both Julia and her brother were known to procure prostitutes for high society and, thus, Moss came in handy as Khashoggi's public relations person, for he wanted to use sex to win over US executives. The acquisition of the Safari Club would serve part of the purpose since it was hidden from any public and tabloid journalists. Moss was even appointed the Mount Kenya Safari Club General Manager and was nicknamed Buana Commander, according to one of the club's publications. The bill for the madams who supplied Khashoggi with girls ran to hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. Recruitment standards for the girls were very strict they could be no older than 24, classy and elegant, very clean and possessing just the right combination of innocence and sexiness. So the presence of an operative like Moss as the manager of the club speaks to this idea uh, that we've mentioned before of elements of the CIA working autonomously and beyond congressional oversight. Now at this point Moss was not supposed to have any real connection to the CIA. He was supposed to have, you know, left the agency by this point. But come on, we know there's no such thing as an ex-spook. It's a recurring theme on this show. And it's an old trick the CIA has used time and again. So lest you think, though, that the Safari Club was all about hijinks and, you know, five-star perversions, we need to remember that there were much bigger, hard-headed, geopolitical and business objectives at stake here as well sexual blackmail and drugs were just two methods that were used in service of that bigger project which was the project of anti-communism and it was a project that handily delivered untold billions into the military industrial complex of the late 70s and the 80s this is from joe trento quote Both Prince Turki al-Faisal and Sheikh Kamal Atam, the head of Saudi intelligence, would play enormous roles in servicing a spy network to replace the official CIA while it was under congressional scrutiny between the time of Watergate and the end of the Carter administration. Several top US military and intelligence officials directed the operations from positions they held overseas, notably former CIA director Richard Helms, at that time the ambassador to Iran. The number one question however, is where was the money coming from? Because running a second CIA ain't cheap, friends, and funding would have to be secured and administered entirely in secret. This is from Trento again, quote, with the official blessing of George H.W. Bush as the head of the CIA, Kamal Adham transformed a small Pakistani merchant bank, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, into a worldwide money laundering machine, buying banks around the world to create the biggest clandestine money network in history. So BCCI became Safari Club's primary bank, and Bush was the one who signed off on it and gave Saudi intelligence the green light. Bush's ties, of course, to Saudi business and intelligence are the stuff of legend. Both Bush 41 and Dubya were very close to Prince Turkey al-Faisal. this is from the Huffington Post, quote, Faisal, a Saudi, is a man who has met Osama bin Laden and his lieutenants on at least five occasions, describing the Al-Qaeda leader as quite a pleasant man. He met multiple times with Taliban leader Mullah Mohammed Omar. Yet, unlike Cindy Sheehan, Al Faisal was a welcome guest of President Bush on Tuesday night. Cut that. Uh, Faisal would go on to be named in a lawsuit by the 9-11 families as a a key financier of terrorism. Uh, The New York Times offers a little bit more detail about that here. Quote, He personally managed Riyadh's relations with Osama bin Laden and Mullah Mohammed Omar. Anyone else who had dealings with even a fraction of the notorious characters the prince has worked with over the years would never make it past the US immigration counter, let alone to the most exclusive offices in Washington. Curiously, his tenure as head of Saudi intelligence came to an abrupt and unexpected end 10 days before the 9-11 attacks. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, though. So let's talk some more about BCCI and Safari Club. Now, the bank is possibly the largest organized criminal conspiracy of the post-war era. I say that without exaggeration. When you try and map it out in your head, the sheer scale of what they were up to, uh, it stole billions of dollars. It laundered billions more. It financed arms deals drug trafficking rings, terrorism, it employed upwards of 1,500 contract killers who were organized into a black ops death squad. And at any point, an assassin could be activated and sent anywhere in the world, you know, after a, a troublesome investigator or witness or journalist. Think of BCCI as a multinational carcosa and its tendrils spreading out, connecting to so much of what has made the world such a very strange place to live in today. Um, you can find key players and clients of the bank cropping up again and again from Afghanistan to 9 from the Balkan Wars to the war on terror, all the way up to the Great Recession and even this ongoing shift to the right that's taking place now in contemporary politics. A lot of that is a result of the fallout from operations that BCCI either financed or its key operatives were connected to in some way. The bank also prided itself on its flair for personal service. Um, its wealthiest clients and customers were treated less like royalty and more like gods, you know. And to this end, BCCI was also heavily involved in using sex slaves to alternately entice or entrap powerful people. this is from the Outlaw Bank, quote, "'From a fanatical drive to please its customers, a darker side began to emerge. As BCCI rose to prominence, its officers continued to put on entertainment for clients in Pakistan. The entourages of Middle Eastern potentates were increasingly being entertained in less wholesome ways. Much of this sort of amusement took place in Lahore's legendary diamond market, the home of the famous dancing girls. There, girls as young as 12, and later even younger, were dressed in silk harem pants and procured by BCCI officers for their clients. In the mid-70s, the man in charge of inspecting the girls was Zafar Iqbal, who later become the chief executive officer of BCCI. Uh, Poppy Bush actually opened an account at BCCI himself and he encouraged all his colleagues and partners to do the same, you know. And in later years, as president, he would take pains to kill investigations into the organization after it collapsed because these investigations were strained dangerously close to enterprise ventures like Iran Contra and the army of um, Saddam Hussein's army. Now, we'll be getting into that further down the road, but Bush's representatives have tried to claim that he figured maintaining good relations with BCCI management would give the CIA access to intelligence that the bank was gathering from its dealings with underground groups around the world. Now in practice, this just became another way for Poppy and his friends to network and make money. And in fact, after he left the CIA in 1977, Bush became the chairman of First International Bank Shares and its uh, British subsidiary. FIB was also linked to BCCI and it would serve as one of many conduits that the Enterprise used to set up arms shipments to the Contras. So financed largely by BCCI, the Safari Club worked to beat back communism and Soviet influence in Africa and the Middle East and secure Western business interests, basically. And the club organized an intervention in the Shaba conflict in Zaire to support Mobutu. The French oversaw an airlift of Egyptian and Moroccan troops into the country. And then they worked in the Congo to protect French and Belgian mine operations, which is a rather <coughs> grisly euphemistic way of saying that they killed a lot of fucking working class people there, you know. And they also served as an intermediary between Egypt and Israel, and they helped lay the foundations for the Camp David Accords and the Peace Treaty of 1979. Uh, They also sided with Somalia against the Soviet backed uh, Ethiopia in 1978, and they supplied arms and funding for the war effort. But the real prize was the destruction of the Soviet Union. And by the end of the 70s, the US through Safari Club was working overtime to bait the USSR into invading Afghanistan to give them their own Vietnam. Um, Now we discussed the role of US intelligence and Saudi intelligence and drug money and banking in the Soviet-Afghan conflict in our um, Cartel World episode from last summer. So do go check that out for more information. It's on the Patreon. But it's relevant to us tonight because, once again, Safari Club and CIA operatives um, were using BCCI to deliver arms and funding to the Mujahideen. And by the bloodiest period of the war, Bush was keeping a very close eye on everything that was going on from his office in the White House because he was the vice president by then. Now, supposedly, the Safari Club officially wound down at some point between 1980 and 1982, and it it achieved what it needed to, basically. And besides that, you had old boy William Casey, who was running the CIA now. Bush uh, was basically secretly running the US government while Reagan delivered grandiose speeches about Manifest Destiny and cities on the hill. And the CIA was for all intents and purposes, it was back in business. So it would absorb the Safari Club network and it would use its new relationships to expand its reach and influence even more through the 1980s. So I just want to quickly point something out here. And this is just in case you think I'm trying to sell you a kind of a great man of history narrative around Bush, you know, paint him as like the architect of the world we live in today um everything we've been discussing uh, the safari club intelligence outsourcing the push to topple the soviet union for good clandestine american involvement in operation condor and the dirty wars you know in nicaragua and afghanistan all of that was a product of an ongoing shift that was taking place at the time because the rise of the neoconservatives had begun um and also the coming neoliberal turn was underway. So you had guys like Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld. They were finding a very receptive audience domestically, you know, in, in the circles of the intelligentsia. And they were advocating an increasingly muscular liberal interventionism. And they argued that American economic and military power should be used to Basically, to construct a world in America's image and destroy the Soviet Union. And, you know, this would kind of filter through to Reagan's sunny Hollywood fried speeches, you know, that were all an effort to restore public morale after the traumas of the 70s and the, the 60s, but also get them on board with this project of America as, you know, the, 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 culmination of history basically now i wouldn't argue that either poppy or reagan were neocons per se i mean poppy was more of a a hard-headed realist ultimately um but that's not to say that his agenda and that of the neocons didn't you know frequently converge so many of the neocons uh played incredibly influential roles not just in uh the government in the Reagan administration, but also at the World Bank, the IMF, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and so on. And we don't really have the space here to get off on the, the neoliberal turn, but this story is very reflective of it in a strange way because the CIA's pivot to outsourcing and increased privatization was perfectly pace with you know those broader developments that were taking place. And there is a definite sense everywhere you look in the late 70s that the old certainties about the arc of history bending left. They were starting, you know, to fall away. The sharks were sent in blood is what I'm trying to say. And outfits like the Bush Enterprise, the Safari Club, BCCI, so on and so forth, they were by no means the only... um, Forces that were shaping covert events. I mean, here in Britain, Lee Circlay would claim credit for the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979. Uh, they would also, you know, consult and advise on the defeat of the miners during the strike. Um, and their operatives, in fact, probably worked with CIA officers to exacerbate the Australian constitutional crisis of 1975. And they had John Kerr, who was the governor general, dismiss, um, I always pronounce this guy's name wrong, Go Whitlam. They dismissed him as the prime minister. We'll go along on that shit show another time. What I'm trying to say, though, is that, you know, once again, it's that pulling out and looking at this broader sort of shape that history is taking at this point. Now, Poppy's involvement in all this clandestine activity, you know, his proximity to terrorist financing, money laundering, drug trafficking, organized crime, and this repeated ability that he displays to kind of erase and bury his his role and connections to various deep events. It's never anything less than stunning and unnerving. You know, when you you read about it and you really process it. So before we wrap up for tonight, um, I'll give you another example of something he was involved in that never really attracted much scrutiny. And it was almost entirely buried by the time that he was being sworn in as president. And now this happened while he was director of the CIA. And by this point, Manuel Noriega had been on the agency payroll for years. And he was also running Kirk and the CIA Depending on who you talk to, they either carefully looked the other way or actively took a percentage of what he was making to finance their own operations. Now, Bush met Noriega a number of times. And there is all kinds of weird shit around the eventual US invasion of Panama that took place when he was the president. And a lot of it has to do with cocaine and cocaine trafficking. But back here um, in the late 70s, Operation Condor is well underway and big time Kirk traffickers like Noriega were excellent sources of financing for the project. I think people get it twisted sometimes and they, they think that Bush was actively making money off the back of cocaine trafficking. And what you have to think of instead is his proximity to that um, was beneficial to him in as much as there is a, a pattern throughout history that that drugs and oil tend to flow along the same supply lines, you know. It wasn't so much that he was making money from the cocaine trade, um, not at least not directly. It's that his proximity to this was in service of a broader covert agenda, you know, to open up new markets and exploit new markets for American capital. Anyway, a month after Jimmy Carter won the election in 1976, Bush met Noriega at the Panamanian embassy um, in Washington. Now, Bush didn't bring an interpreter or a pen or a notebook, and Noriega told a journalist called Peter Eisner, that he took this to mean that Bush didn't want any witnesses to the conversation. And as Noriega described it, quote, Bush said, have you done a report on the bombings? What he meant, I am sure, was I hope you haven't written a real report about what we did. I said, yes, I wrote a report and I sent it to General McAuliffe, the head of the US Southern Command in Panama. I assured him, don't worry, we're not talking. Noriega is referring here to a series of small bombings that took place in the canal zone in Panama. Now, these bombings were overseen by the CIA. And as Peter Eisner describes it, quote, US intelligence trained Panamanian military operatives in explosives and demolition tactics, then dispatched them back to Panama. At the time, Gerald Ford was president. The idea was to convince conservatives in Congress that it was better to sign the Panama Canal Treaties than to face possible guerrilla warfare and a Panamanian liberation movement. The fake bombing mission may have contributed to the passage of the Panama Canal Treaties signed by Noriega's mentor, General Omar Tahiros and Jimmy Carter in September of 1977. Relative to everything else that Bush was involved in, this I know seems like small potatoes, but it's a perfect example of how far he was willing to go to achieve an objective, you know? And again, this uncanny ability that he had of erasing stories like this from records of his life. So something else happened in 1977 that would have profound consequences for the world in the decades ahead. Because in June of that year, George W. Bush, Bush the Younger, he set up an oil drilling company called Busto Energy. And one of his partners was James Bath, who was a family friend. James Bath was also an American representative of a Saudi playboy called Saddam Bin Laden. And this was Osama's brother. Selem would invest in our bus store through Bath. And the fact that the company was troubled from the beginning and never really made any money is beside the point. A lot of these, you know, vanity startup companies don't really exist to be profitable endeavors. Their function is to bring people together, you know, to create links in networks that might be profitable further down the line. So the Bush, Saudi... Alliance was going to prove very profitable for everyone involved. We're going to be getting even deeper into it next episode. By the time Poppy left the CIA, his Rolodex had expanded and he had his choice of cushy consultancy gigs and speaking engagements. He had succeeded in his mission of saving the CIA from itself and he began to mull over the idea of a run for president. Next time out, we're going to discuss one more aspect of Bush's time as CIA director, which is Team B. Now, I'm aware I said we'd discuss that in this episode, but, you know, there just wasn't enough time. So apologies for that. Next episode for sure. Then, we're going to track him up until the election, and we're going to examine this concept of Poppy as godfather of the deep state in more detail. And after that, like I said, we're going to get a little bit deeper into the Saudi connection and BCCI. So yeah, from the count rooms in Vegas to the Panama Canal, from Disneyland to Cuban Exiles and the Safari Club in Kenya, I told you that this year was going to be a a cocaine supernova of intrigue. And ahead I see a pair of looming towers, friends. There is one more thing, though, that I wanted to share. And th- I want to share this just because it struck me quite forcefully when I was prepping this episode. Now, I'm sure you're aware of the famous 28 pages, you know, the redacted passages of the 9-11 commission report. These pages, they relate to Saudi involvement in 9-11. But it's becoming more and more obvious they also examine Bush family connections to the same Saudis. There was a congressman called Thomas Massey who was allowed to read the unredacted pages in 2014. And he said this, quote, There's nothing in them about national security. It's about the Bush administration and its relationship with the Saudis. As I read it, and we all had our own experience, I had to stop every couple of pages and just sort of try to absorb and try to rearrange my understanding of history. It challenges you to rethink everything. I think the whole country needs to go through that. And, you know, more and more information is starting to filter out at the moment. There are a few theories about why the Americans are suddenly keen to expose the Saudi connection to 9-11. To be honest, you know, most of these revelations have already either been known or strongly suspected in our circles, you might say, for 20 years now. But it's still quite surreal to see the BBC and CNN openly reporting on um, the Saudi operative Omar al-Bayoumi and his connection to the hijackers. Uh, Bayoumi was probably their handler in the States, and the FBI said, It turns out in the immediate aftermath, this was in a declassified memo. They said that his presence in San Diego uh, with the hijackers indicated a 50-50 chance that Saudi Arabia was directly responsible for 9-11. Now, you could and you probably should write a lot of this off as a limited hangout. And to be fair, you know, there's certainly no indication that any Americans, least of all the Bush family, are going to be tied to the attacks in any of these documents that they're releasing. But that doesn't really matter. Because the connections between the Bush family and the Saudis have been exhaustively documented by this point. We're going to contribute to that a little bit in the next episode. And yeah, you don't need to look very hard to find indirect lines connecting the Bush family to the Saudis and from there to Operation 9-11. However, and again, we are getting ahead of ourselves, so we are going to leave things there for now. As ever, thanks for listening. Uh, Leave a, a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already, or sub and share some love over on Patreon. Until next time, mark the exits, don't get captured, I'm sorry this episode was late, and I'll catch you next time.